back to yet another episode of Behind the Lens. I'm Debbie Elias, film critic, creator, and host of Behind the Lens. And you can find my movie reviews and interviews in print and online in the U.S. and abroad 24-7. But every Monday, I am right here on AdrenalineRadio.com, 11 a.m. Pacific, 2 p.m. Eastern Time. And a big shout-out to a lot of our European audience. Um, I was just checking stats again over the weekend, and the Italian audience, Italian listeners, thank you, thank you for joining us. Uh, our listeners in Great Britain and in Germany, we have some big contingents in there. Uh, hopefully today we're going to pick up some uh, listeners from Israel as we have joining us at the midpoint of the show, director Doran Paz, to talk about his new film, The Golem. Uh, I love this film. It is steeped in Jewish mysticism of the Kabbalah as well as 17th century history. Uh, and uh, hopefully, we're crossing our fingers for a good phone connection. Uh, Doran has already warned us that sometimes his phone connection is not that good calling out of Israel. So we're crossing our fingers for that at the half-hour mark. Um, at the quarter-hour mark, or thereabouts, Ron Carlson, director Ron Carlson, uh, writer-director, is going to join us to talk about his hilarious, and I do mean hilarious, B-horror movie camp fun Dead Ant. I'm telling you, for this film alone, we need drive-in theaters erected across the country. Um, it is a fun, fun ride. Uh, and it's got Jake Busey, who he is cha definitely channeling his father in this film. Uh, but we'll talk to Ron and, and hopefully to Ron later in the show. But right now, there's a new film that just opened. It will be going wider, direct TV. The Hole in the Ground, uh, a true, true psychological thriller, but with a refreshing take on the genre, uh, written and directed by Lee Cronin, and, <clears throat> excuse me, I'm losing my voice today. I have an ant bite under, or a spider bite under my eye, losing my voice, and I'm still in the throes of injury from a torn lateral collateral ligament of my leg. Ah, uh, so, but we soldier on. Anyway, uh, The Hole in the Ground, um, written and directed by Lee Cronin, he subverts genre tropes, delivers a nail-biting, seat-jumping jaunt into a story that mines the relationship of self-doubt, leading to revelations about the truth of oneself, strength of character. It, the story surrounds a mother and, a mother and son, Sarah and Chris O'Neill, they have now moved to Northern Ireland. The film is totally shot on location, um, which is spectacular in aiding to in <clears throat> buttressing the ambient nature of the film, of which this is so the story is so heavily predicated upon. Um, but strange things happen. There is a forest. There is a sinkhole. And when you think of a sinkhole, it's not what you see on the, on the news with cars falling into concreted sinkholes or big sinkholes in green grass. No, this is a huge, quote-unquote, natural sinkhole. And the best description I can give you is it's very organic. It's almost alive with the roots of trees being exposed, and they're moving like tentacles or roots. And at first blush, it actually looks like the the sand monster in... Uh, Return of the Jedi, 
as Jabba is getting ready to have Lando fall in, and everybody get thrown into a pit and get eaten. And that is the effect that you have to give you some visual point of reference. Um, stunning performances. Stunning performances from Shauna Kerslake. Breakout performance from young James Quinn Markey as who plays the young son, Chris. Shauna plays Sarah. Um, it is a well-crafted script. It is thoughtful and deliberate in the story. Uh, and it really hones in on the drama of a mother's doubt and uncertainty in as to whether she's doing the best for her child that she can do. Production design is exemplary. Tom Comerford's cinematography is absolutely stunning. Uh, and it, the metaphoric nature of it just fuels the emotional beats, the tension. I sat down with Shauna and with Lee the other day. First, we're going to listen to some excerpts of my, if, of my interview with Lee Cronin talking about the hole in the ground and first of all, the genesis of this story and designing the visual conceptualization. Because on paper, you've got to wonder, how is this going to work? Which means you have to have a visual eye, especially if you're going to step in and direct it as well. So take a listen. Well, I have to tell you, number one, two of my favorite expressions all year are now going to be ass face and anus face. <laughs> nice. <laughs> Thank you for that, Lee. But... This is what you have done here. This is a refreshing new take on the psychological horror drama. Thanks very much. Thriller. Um, you subverted all the, the typical tropes that we expect to see. But you give us, you really examine the relationship of self-doubt. Mm -hmm. And how we ultimately, revelations come out about one's true self. Mm -hmm. And in others. Yeah. And you use the mirror metaphoric, metaphorically reflecting the true soul of somebody mm -hmm. and the truth of it yeah. within them. I love You got it. You got it for sure. That's, I yeah. love it. This is so well crafted as a script. The story is very thoughtful, very deliberate. And the way that you bring this to life through your ambient visual tonal bandwidth is marvelous. It's great to hear. It's very kind of you. It is you. Marvelous. I've got to start with the story. Go for it. Where did this come from? Because you have so many layers in here with that self-exploration, mm -hmm. with the self-doubt, yeah. with holding the mirror up to see your own true self. Yeah. Going back to the fairy tale days mm -hmm. of looking at who's the fairest one of all, who is the true one that sure. we see. Yeah. But you explore that through the dynamic of a mother and a child. Mm -hmm. But a family that has been fractured, a woman that has been hurt, yeah, and questions everything. Mm -hmm. So where did this originate? It, it, it was it's it's a great question, asked in a very nuanced fashion, and looking at a lot of the details that exist. And I think they're probably there because it wasn't just a light bulb moment of a ping idea. It was actually it was the building of layers over time mm -hmm. and how it was created. So, like the very basic idea began with reading a sink a story about a guy sitting in an armchair in Florida. And a sinkhole formed in a sitting room and he vanished and he was gone and I thought that was a really scary thing how the earth could just swallow you up and I did explore this kind of story that was like that people just getting taken but it just never felt right because I didn't really want to make like an action horror you know that right. wasn't where I wanted to go at the same time I was exploring this story this idea about a mother and son and 
the doubt may exist between them when they come out of a traumatic experience, whatever that may be. It's like, right. you know, in the end I defined what it was for the purposes of making the film, but that idea of, you know, if you're, you know, a mother and a son or a father and a son or a daughter, whatever it might be, and you come out of it, sometimes you have to kind of slightly relearn who, who each other is and try, mm-hmm. try and refine that, that trust. So, you know, not I don't have children, but, you know, there's people in my life that do, people that are close. I mean, I was looking, taking some inspiration from people that I knew and loved and looking at this idea of a sinkhole. And I remember the two things just connecting and how the sinkhole might represent your, your biggest fear, but also the future unknown, particularly if you were a single parent and you found yourself in a set of circumstances where you were trying to keep your head above water, but maybe, you know, you're slowly sinking. And I know that's water versus the earth itself, but mm-hmm. that idea that yeah. the metaphor that you're maybe, maybe the, the rug could just be pulled from underneath mm-hmm. you. Um, so yeah, it was a combination of all those things, um, and looking at, then also looking at you know the, the the horror filmmaker inside me, looking at the proposition of how you could I could scare people with the notion of looking at somebody that you know they look right, they move right, they sound right, they smell right, but there's something in your very core that makes you think they're not that person. And I think everybody in life has had an experience where they um, they look at somebody that they know intimately. But, or maybe sometimes it comes from the course of an argument is a good example and you see a twitch or you see a reaction you've never seen before and you get that, that horrible feeling of like do I truly know who this person is mm-hmm. so I'm quite interested in the horror that you can draw out of domestic circumstance in this particular story it's about a mother and a son but I think the wider stories I'm exploring the things that I'm working on are mm-hmm. within that similar field of you know the, the horror that can exist at home and I, I had a really good home life but it's just it's a you know it's, it can still be a scary place when yeah. it's on behind closed doors you know, and then you bring this to life visually through a sinkhole but the way you have designed this sinkhole and I gotta say kudos to Tom Comerford your cinematographer yeah. the, the overhead shots that you use and the CGI that you implement yeah. in here absolutely stunning because we have this we are going down the rabbit hole sure maybe a sinkhole but we're going yeah, down exactly. the rabbit with, hole with Sarah whether we like into it or not into Sarah's mind into whatever is happening to Chris yeah and the way you create this through your VFX and production design with the, the roots are coming down but they're coming out of the hole itself like yeah. reminding you of the monster outside Jabba's palace in, yeah, yeah, in yeah, yeah, Return yeah. of the Jedi is it sw- getting ready to swallow the land pit. out. Yeah, yeah. Um, but tentacles reaching out to grab you and eat you and devour you. Sure. The nightmares that everyone has. Of course, yeah, primal so stuff. it is just a visual, it's dynamic from a visual standpoint to see this. And I'm curious how, curious how you conceptualized this to take us there and then take us under into the caverns mm-hmm. That it's like going through the little tunnels of your brain. It wasn't. That's really great that you, you noted that because I remember we talked about that we wanted the underworld to some, at, at times to feel like yeah, like the synapses, like we're inside Sarah's mind really at that point. Yeah. And you know, budget gets in the way. A certain amount. We did our best. Damn. And, yeah, we did the best that we could. But the um, yeah, the, the, I think the visual conception of the film certainly starts on the page. Like I'd be very specific when I write about how things look. I try and paint. You know, screenplay should be words that are painting pictures and then dialogue so mm-hmm. you know I was quite clear about how I wanted the film to look and I had a, a, an existing relationship with Tom who shot the movie and we spent a lot of bit of like unofficial planning time before we were in official prep just kind of crafting in our minds how we wanted it to be and how we wanted it to look um, and we kind of made the call early on we knew we wanted to paint it on a kind of widescreen cinematic canvas we felt the landscapes deserved it we also wanted there to be this sense of scale 
that then we could come in really close with mm-hmm. the characters so we feel like they're kind of isolated so like there's probably not a lot of like just regular old mid shots and of course there is we use them but in the more dramatic spaces we use some fairly serious close ups but also then yeah, some, some, you're, big, you're using, some bigger wider yeah, shots as well you've got your widescreen versus your ECU yeah, yeah. and I love how you how you play with that and you mold it like play yeah we tried to use it that way and, and then we we sat down and we we storyboarded some scenes the scenes we could afford to storyboard but we you know using words we described very explicitly what we wanted the shots to be as we went so everything was planned and I wanted quality over quantity that was the, the swing that I was taking you know yeah. that was the punt and the gamble going into it was I'm not just going to go out and walk into a room and go how are we going to shoot this we walked into a room we actually walked through the location beforehand um, particularly in the house and the best we could in other locations and we would photograph you know each angle as we kind of went and checked that it worked and checked that it was what we want and then it's low budget filmmaking you go in and you only get to do half those things but that's just part of the process but if you're well planned um, you're in a position to actually make those changes on the day to make those compromises but it was all in the planning really and in the planning yes indeed and when you see the hole in the ground you will see that for yourself so we will get back to more of Lee Cronin Uh, And the interview will be up in its entirety later on tonight on BehindTheLensOnline.net. My review of the film is already there. Uh, You can also find it on Rotten Tomatoes and on IMDb and all over the place. But right now, we're going to switch gears and go from psychological horror of sinkholes, motherhood, primal fear, and... We're going to talk with the wonderful and talented Ron Carlson. Are you there, Ron? I am here. Hi. How's it going? Oh, I am thrilled to be talking to you. Welcome to Behind the Lens. Thanks for thanks for having me. Well, all it's You're catching me with a little bit of a, a winter cold, so I hope that's all right. Oh, that's fine. I've got a spider bite and a half-swollen eye and a little bit of, of a cold in the throat, too, so... We're a fine pair here. That's crazy. I got a spider bite like three weeks ago. I got bit by a black widow. Oh, wow. You know, yeah, legit. I think, I, I think I, I, a movie idea is formulating in my head. You know? Right. Now, I mean, this one was really quick. It bit me and I killed it at the end. It was, it's a short. Okay, well, that's always good. You know, that, that's, that's always a good thing. But we're here to talk about ants, and specifically Dead Ant. This film is so much fun, Ron. I laughed myself silly from beginning to end. It's the kind of film, I'm sitting there watching it, and all I could think of is, oh my God, this would have been so great to see, you know, back in high school and college, when I was living back east in Philly, we had a great drive-in at Ridge and Butler Pike, and that's where you went. To the drive-in. This is a perfect B horror B campy fun film, and I just can't get enough of it. Oh, I'm so glad. Yeah, no, we're we're really happy with it. We're it's I mean, it's nothing more than a good time. When anybody tries to look into it deeper than that, then <laughs> no, that's that's their own little problem, you know. But we you, and you know, and we need movies like this that don't have subliminal messaging or or deeper meaning, other than to have a good time. And of course, the minute you get Tom Arnold in a film, you kind of know you're going to have a good time, one way or the other. 
Right? Yeah, Tom's great in this, too. Oh. I mean, I, I, I love Tom in this. Tom is perfection. And, you know, he is. He plays that down-and-out, kind of like a desperate man better than anybody, you know? And, mm-hmm. uh, and a desperate man with a plan. And, uh, and, and we love his performance in this. And his fast-talking patter that he, the cadence that he has... It, it it's the shuck and jive that you know is happening, but you're loving every second of it. Yeah, <laughs> I'm so glad you like that. And yeah, and he and you know he's surrounded by great people as well. Mm-hmm. Absolutely, you know, Jake, and, Jake and Reese and Leisha really feed off of his energy, and um, you know they really everybody came together, and it just it really is like a it's a tight working unit. So we're, the, the acting is, I, I think, is uh, a little above the B-movie level. On this. Oh, ad- absolutely. And I'm glad you mentioned, you know, Jake Busey. I mean, Jake is definitely channeling his father here. I, he obviously <laughs> paid attention and has watched and watched his father and learned either through osmosis or something. But Jake is so off the wall here as the lead singer Merrick in this wonderful band called Sonic Grave. Um, that he is delicious. He is absolutely delicious in this role. And Reese Coro is great. Sean Astin and Alicia Haley. We get a female drummer thrown in here. But I love the whole the whole construct that you've come up with. You know, they're a former, they, they're one-hit wonder, an 80s heavy metal band with hair and glam and spandex. And this could be their chance for a comeback at Nochella, not Coachella. Nochella. Nochella, which seems just so perfect coming out of the mouth of Tom Arnold as their manager. <laughs> he says that, uh, you know, and he sells it. They're like, okay, we're we're in. You know, where did the idea? <laughs> where did the idea for this film arise, Ron? Um, Especially because then you bring in your horror element being out in the desert and ants. Ants start attacking. Well, yeah, you know, uh, it kind of is a combination of things. The, um, you know, I'm a fan um, of hair metal, which you can probably, uh, you know, see when you watch the film. Mm-hmm. And, and, a hair metal band today is is really an underdog. They're probably not going to have a comeback. So <laughs> when you when you start with with characters that that are an underdog, you know that gives you somebody to root for automatically. Mm-hmm. And then when you're in a horror premise of a film, you know you, you want to root for that character to survive. You know whoever the whoever your character is in any horror film. You know you're like ah, don't get killed. <laughs> um, so. And then the ants came from, you know, kind of my love of, you know, old-time drive-in creature movies. And, uh, and those, those films, like, uh, you know, well, for one, them was kind of the first uh, giant ant film. Mm-hmm. And then, then there was the Empire of the Ants with Joan Collins in 73. And then kind of like a big dry spell. We, we hadn't even had ants. We had no. spiders, we had sharks. And I thought, ah, oh, let's bring back an ant film. You know, the, the, the effects in the movie, you know, it was like, uh, you know, are, are a throwback. Like, 
basically people use CG now, and um, and uh, so they're not the Star Wars level of effects, you know. They're, right. they're fitting for for this type of a movie, you know. And I think that you know the movie first and foremost is a comedy, mm-hmm. you know? and, and that's what we set out to do. So it's funny sometimes I. I hear people like, oh, you know, oh, the effects, oh, you know, if the effects were better, I'm like, well, that's part of the movie, you know? And that's one of the beautiful things, so. because your effects, while they, they are not industrial light and magic level effects, they are also not the old, um, you know, there was a movie that came out, oh, probably about 15, 17 years ago that was also a B movie and an homage to the horror movies of you know, the serials of the 30s and 40s, The Lost Skeleton of Cadavra. And you could actually yeah. see the string pulling creatures across sand and things like that. No, you have upped the ante. These are very well done CG effects here within the film. Um, but they, Well, within the budget. Within the budget. I mean? Like, all, all those effects together, you know, um, if, if any other filmmaker going to go out and try and get a hundred, you know, I have 700 shots and I spent about a hundred grand on the effects. So that's, that's um, really inexpensive for, for what we needed to accomplish. Wow. And I, and I always, I guess I always bring up, you know, the movies and the effect uh, is, is a comedy, but I bring up the effects because the horror audiences always like, that seems to be such a huge, yes. Um, it's such a huge point of that they emphasize in every single movie about the effects and it's funny i did a practical effect movie before this that i produced and wrote i didn't direct it but we spent a hundred thousand dollars on an animatronic bear Mm -hmm. and and it sucked and and everyone was like oh you know don't use practical you should be using cg and then i use cg and everyone's like oh Where's the good nature sweetness of practical effects, you know? So, um, <laughs> you know, you can't please everybody. Well, um, but the beauty... You know how you can please everybody is when you work with a studio and you get a $100 million movie and, and you have amazing effects. But the thing, um, is, the thing is, your effects in, in Dead Antho, Ron, they're appropriate <laughs> for the film but without being cheesy. And, you know, they let you know. I mean, you look at, at some of the ants and the way they're amassing and attacking. And it's funny. And it just it yeah. fuel, it fits right in with the comedic tone and the comedic beats that you have going. And you even, there's a great lyricism to the movement and the introduction of the ants when they appear at certain places in some of the antics that they participate in. Um you know, so don't sell yourself short on these on these CG effects because they are well done and they fit Thank the you. film. You know, that's one of the uh, great things here. They fit the film. Ah, uh, well, that that's great to hear. Um, and and you know, like I said, like the the movie is a comedy right out of the gate, yeah. so it's like we get a real, um, you know. I, I, I feel like the movie is uh, is full of laughs. You know, the the cast really, they really, they just, they, they, they killed this. Mm-hmm. Oh, absolutely. You have a great cast. 
and they keep everything upbeat and light and at times go into the ridiculum of silliness that's so fun to watch. And then you working with your DP, with Mark Carter, you keep, yes. the, you keep the whole visual tone of the film light, too. You never, there aren't any dark shadows, there aren't things lurking in, in the, you know, in the negative space, because there is no negative space on the screen in this film. Everything is light, it's bright, it's out in the open, it's, you shot it in the California desert, so you take advantage yep. of the sun and the sand and the lightness and brightness that brings. So throughout this whole film, everything feels funny. It feels fun. And... Well- It's a a party. Like, if you go to a music festival, you know, the idea is um, you feel like, and and I've gotten this response, that you feel like, especially if you've seen it in the theater with, you know, four or five hundred, six hundred people, it feels like you're at a concert, you know? Mm -hmm. Oh, especially uh, in in your third act, that climactic number that they do on stage at Nochella with ants attacking. Right. Um, and Tom Arnold just goes off the rails there. I got to say, I mean, I did not stop laughing watching him. At the end? Oh, my God. At the very end. Oh, my God. Don't give it away. But I'm it's not. It's funny. It's, it, it's just, but it's patented Tom Arnold. I mean, for my money, I wanted to see it because Tom was in it. And then I saw. Oh, that's so great. Then I saw the, the other performances and the other, the other actors that you had lined up, namely Jake. Um, and then Sean, and I was so pleasantly surprised, not only with the individual performances, but together, together as a group, as, as an ensemble. They all fit. You know, they fit the parts, and they, they fit each they other. They did. It's something that, you know, none of them had really worked, you know, with each other um, uh, you know, I think briefly Sean and Jake had worked together on a film 20 mm-hmm. years ago, but for the rest of them, it was, they were all kind of people that have had careers, but none of them have worked with each other. And, and, um, and it's funny. It's like these actors came together just like, uh, like a band would come together mm-hmm. and, you know, they're kind of all down on, you know, on their luck and they come together and they need a hit and, and it's kind of simultaneous to, uh, you know, it's, it's kind of like, um, you know, a through line that, that works within the movie. And you know what's, what else is interesting is that um, Jake and Leisha and um, Reese are all musicians, actually, which I didn't know this when I cast them. I actually knew that Leisha was, but, but Jake and, uh, and Reese, I didn't. And through the course of making the film we also wrote a song the song side move which is you know over the end credits and, yeah and uh and that song's now playing on like 50 different radio stations across the country <laughs> so it's really kind of a crazy thing that that here was this film and a, and a band that was created for the movie and then during the course of us making it they they came together and we wrote a song and and now that song's I don't want to say it's a hit by any means, but it but it is getting out there, and it's that's very difficult to do if you're a real band. You know, you know? it's it's so, it's the monkeys all over again. <laughs> they were not so, a band. They came together. Oh, really? for, yeah, they came together for the TV show, 
And then they became a band out of the, the TV show. So well, you, you if, have the if hair metal does come back. Sonic Grave has a chance. See, <laughs> see, well, you know, very quick. I want to ask you, um, you shot this in the desert in California in the winter. It's supposed to be summer for the concert, but I'm curious uh, because you did shoot this a number of years ago. Uh, since this had you had a world premiere in October of 2017 at Scream at Screamfest, so I'm curious how, yep. how logistically challenging this was for you um, to shoot well, in the desert, and also while you know we were in the in the throes of a major drought at that time, which really <laughs> which really sucked for us to be honest with you, um, yeah. Shot it in the desert, and uh, we shot it in the winter, so it appears warm and great. It was actually, you know, roughly twenty degrees, and you know when we'd start work in the morning. <laughs> so, and it was, you know, and then those night scenes. We shot those night scenes, and I think it dipped down into the teens during the night when we shot those. So it was very cold. The entire shoot was a very very cold shoot. So, for for it to have the appearance of this warm, awesome, fun, uplifting music festival is great. Mm-hmm. So the other the other part that's difficult about shooting um, a day movie in the winter is you really don't have that many hours of daylight. Right. So, you know, like, you know, in the film business, we work 12 hours a day, and uh, and we didn't have 12 hours of daylight a day. So right. that, that kind of hindered how much we could actually shoot during during our our day. So that, that was a difficult moment. And we did, we shot this movie, uh, I think three years ago and it took me a while. It, it, it premiered at Scream Fest in the fall of 2017. And then it did a festival run for about a year. Mm -hmm. So, you know, it played Belgium, it played Buenos Aires, it played Switzerland, France a few times, um, lots of different places. Telluride, et cetera, et cetera, across the country. Um, and, and then we had our sale, and they wanted to release it uh, initially with a thought around Halloween, but it's not a Halloween movie. It's no. not really, it doesn't fit into that Halloween box. So then they pushed the, uh, the release until this January. So it kind of like, that's something that, you don't have control of when right. you're making the movie. And when you're in an independent film, you're a film that, you know, you don't have a distributor when you start out. And um, so you, you look to then sell the movie. So, you know, we, we had several offers, and Cinedyne really gave us a, a, a great home with the film. And so that, that's who we went with. Um, well, and, and I hope that as many people as possible can get to actually see it. Well, you know? I and I was so. kind of really holding out to try to get the movie in the theaters as well. You know, mm-hmm. like on a on a on a bigger level because the theater experience with this is you know, laughter is contagious and it's a very different experience to sit and watch it on your smart device or your computer or your television at home. It's like being at a party. It's like sitting at home with a red solo cup. <laughs> it's very different than being in a room with a hundred people with red solo cups. You know, oh, that, that has two different. You know, absolutely. One single solo cup is kind of sad. You know, 
you're home and you've got your little solo cup and you're going, woo, this is fun. Very different experience than being in, you know, the super solo cup room. That's it. Well, unfortunately, Ron, we're all out of time. I could talk to you forever about this film. I hope you'll come back on the show. Of course. I mean, this this is just, this is so much fun. And everybody, Dead Ant, you can find it on VOD. And yes, it is on Spectrum because I double-checked since they're kind of late to the late to the game sometimes. And on all kinds of digital platforms, too. Dead Ant, this is hilarity personified. I got to tell you, Ron. So thank you, thank you so much for coming on the show to talk about it. Ah, thanks, Debbie. I appreciate it. Have and I'll talk to you soon. Thanks. Okay, sounds good. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. And that was Ron Carlson, Dead Ant. See it. You'll laugh yourself silly. And now, I am beyond excited. Are you there, Ron? Yeah, hi. Oh, the phone connection sounds good. Uh, yeah, yeah, we have phone lines in Israel. It's amazing. I know. We have I... electricity and phones and internet. It's crazy, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I know. I got the email from Maggie, and she was like, "Sometimes the phone connection isn't that good." I said, "Well, we're gonna go. With it. We're gonna go with it and see what happens." Yeah. You know? Yeah, yeah. We have the technology. Yeah, we we're, have we're the good. technology. Something tells me you created your own golem to protect the phone lines this morning. Exactly. Yeah, I did some Kabbalah, Kabbalah prayers, and uh, <laughs> yeah, working. This the golem. I have to tell you. Fabulous. Fascinating. Thank you. Fabulous. High production values. Your night shots are exquisite. Look gorgeous. Um, Where? Yeah, thanks. Where did this... Now, I've heard of the Golem for my entire life. I've heard of it. And some... Oh, really? Because not a lot of people... I I always wonder if people know about this mythology or not. I heard about it because... When I was growing up, our next door neighbors, um, Pat Kuttner, she was so into, she was, you know, she was Jewish. She was very devout and she was really into the history, the history of Judaism and everything, the Kabbalah and everything that extended beyond and history into uh, practices in different countries. So it was always really interesting to talk to her and to hear her talk about things like this. And that just made me want to go looking for information on it. And we've seen some movies where a golem shows up, but nothing has ever given us the actual mystical history and going into the details of the 72 sacred letters that is so, that is the the main component to bringing a golem uh, to life in, be it in folklore, be it truth. Um, we may not know, but you really take this. Yeah, but but you're no. Go you're ahead. Right, it is. It is very. It's a very fascinating side of Judaism. Me and Yoav, my brother, we co-direct. I co-directed this with my brother Yoav, and uh, yeah, we always like to deal with the dark side stuff. Uh, uh, so uh, Judaism has a lot of dark side in it. A lot of dark mythologies and secrets and. Legends, and one of them is obviously the golem, which is as our us as kids, we grow up with this uh, mythology. It's our own Frankenstein story, mm-hmm. uh, 
And once you go, well, we started doing research about it, and we, with, along with our screenwriter, Ariel Cohen, and the producer, who is uh, Shalom Eisenbach, who is an uh, ex-Orthodox. So we start, they started giving us all kinds of facts and scriptures to read. And it's, it's mind-blowing mind that you can actually have in the Kabbalah, you actually have a recipe, yeah. a real recipe that you, anyone at home can make his own tolem, which is amazing. Yes, I mean, you need water, you need virgin dirt. I don't know. I, I don't right, know. Right, right, right. I don't know where we're going. And, you know, you've got to map out these 72 sacred letters. Yeah. Um, that's it's, the code. It's fascinating to see this and the way you've woven it in to the story. And you do it through your main character of Hannah, a woman in 17th right. century Lithuania who is bucking the system. She's sneaking in reading her husband's Kabbalah. She wants to stand up defy the men, uh, defy the rabbi in the village. I mean, woman's rights before her time. So you really yeah. push the it's envelope very... on so many levels here. Yeah. Uh, we wanted, like, when, you, again, when we approached and started to work about this film, the, the, the golem story, the basic golem story is very simple. Like, uh, the, the, for the Gentiles tried to kill the Jews. Eastern Europe, there's a lot of stories about it, just as one story. And then this rabbi, the famous one is the Maharal for Prague, and he formed this golem to protect the town, the town, and, and he did. This preacher came out of nowhere from this clay and mud, saved everyone, but eventually he got out, out of control, and this rabbi had to kill it, to shut him down. So yeah. that's, the, that's the basic story, but obviously we wanted to deal with much more complicated and much, much more interesting story. We came up with Hannah, uh, the character, a Jewish character, a female character, uh, who is obviously in an Orthodox society, is not allowed to study Torah and Kabbalah. So for us, it was a, a story, and we, and we told the story about her and, uh, with her husband as a couple, a much more dramatic uh, story about a couple who lost their baby in a tragic in a kid in a tragic accident, and now... Has, uh, she, she, for all kinds of reasons, I'm not going to, maybe not, not go into the details, but she finds herself building another golem who ends up being a replacement for the kid in a way. Mm -hmm. So our, our variation, on, our take on this story is actually a golem kid. Yeah. Which is deadly and dangerous, of course, but it's much more dramatic and much more interesting as far as we see it. Well, I got to say, anybody's ever been around the kids... At some point, they are always deadly and dangerous if you leave them unattended. They're scary. Um, but what? Yeah, yeah. what? In the of, when you wake up, when you wake up in the middle of the night, they're very scary. <laughs> when they you sleep, Especially scary. if you're asleep and Monster. suddenly they're standing next to your bed looking yeah, at you. Yeah. <laughs> um, I exactly. Yes, but what, what I love here is that at the core of the story, at, at the script, this is a real rumination on grief. Um. And the, right. uh, because it's grief that drives Hannah. And it, yeah. it, it really, you give us great food for thought on the lengths that people go to to deal with their grief, to ignore their grief. And the creation of this, of this child golem was one of her ways of dealing with grief. Yeah. But then you also, the whole Frankenstein aspect the godlike nature of trying to create life, um, and the penalty and the price yeah, that you pay thank, for thank that. Thank God. Yeah. I think in every society and every culture, 
deals deal some, somewhere or another deals with this question, like what's it like to be uh, create, what it's like to play God, yeah. to create life. We do, like, and it, you know, if it's Frankenstein, it's the golem, if so many mythologies about around folk, folk horror stuff about it. So yeah. our takeoff was, uh, yes, those were the same. Again, we, we walked it into a story uh, about uh, this couple and, the, and their husband after this strategy, once they lost their baby, their kid. So the, the husband wants to move on, wants to, you know, to make it, to build a family again, to move on, leave, leave the grief behind and, you know, go forward. And, and Hannah, our protagonist, she can't do it. She's obsessed about the reason why this happened, why did God took her kid. So, mm-hmm. so she dives for years, she dives into this Kamala book, trying to find the reason why did this happen. But what we're trying to say in the movie, that, and, and for us, also, to me, the character, that it happens. There's, God won't give you an answer why this shit happened. And yeah. the, 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 she just needs to find strength to move on and to, to carry herself and, and to, to, uh, to move on with life. So uh, once you, we, we dealt with this story in Golem perspective, I think we found a very interesting and dramatic engine to this, to this, to this movie. Absolutely. You know, talk to me about, you shot this on location in the Ukraine. And, and now this is right. set in a very small, traditional Jewish village uh, that we would have found in Lithuania in the 1700s. Did you build this, the village from, uh, from scratch to create it for the film? Or, you know, what was yeah, this process it, it, like? Yeah, it's a funny story, because obviously, yeah, the story takes place in, it's called the Shtetl, an old Jewish town called the Shtetl. In Eastern Europe, there were hundreds and thousands of these small, isolated <laughs> Jewish towns. <coughs> so we started, when we started looking for this location, uh, we went to our, our producer, took us to Ukraine, where he shoots, he shoots a lot of movies there. And uh, we started start, start scouting, and then we found in the middle of the field, like an hour and a half from Kiev, it's a, it's a surreal uh, image. Just in the middle of the field, in the middle of nowhere, there was a film studio standing. And it is film because the Russians built it for this TV show they shot there like five, six years ago, but now there's a war going on between Russia and Ukraine. Right. So the Russians are not shooting there anymore. So it's just deserted in the middle of the field. Nothing happens there. And, and it's very surreal just to go in. It's all deserted and quiet. But as you go in, you find a village, which is exactly the shtetl, the Jewish town we were looking for. Wow. So, it, it, yeah. And, it, and there is a facility for shooting, makeup rooms and production rooms. And all the facilities are there. And we had to rebuild some stuff, obviously, to renovate and to bring animals and, you know, to bring this town to life. But the basics were there, which is amazing. To find an old shtetl, deserted shtetl in the middle of nowhere, uh, with this scenery around, this wild west Ukrainian uh, scenery around. For us, it was uh, what, exactly what we wanted. You know, how did you go about uh, working with your cinematographer, with Rotem Yaron? Um, your cinematography is beautiful. In the daytime, we get the wide open spaces. We get, we understand, and we see the simplicity of life. Tiny little pops of color at night. You've got some rich, vibrant shots utilizing, uh, capitalizing on candlelight. So I'm curious your work with him in designing your visual palette. 
Uh, okay, good question. Obviously, we come from a, me, me and Yoav, me and my brother, we do a lot of commercial shows. We started out as music videos, directors, and commercials. So we come from the visual side. We always like to create our own world and not be hyper-realistic. I mean, mm-hmm. there are directors who like to, you know, they have the realism of stuff. We like the uh, opposite. We like to make a fantasy, build a, a new world. Uh, Rotem Yaron, our amazing OP, we, we, we grew up with him in Israel, like for 20 years we were working with him. Did a, he did a previous movie also, he shot a previous movie called Jerusalem, and uh, we're doing a lot of commercials with him. And so when we started working on this project, the, the main idea was, there's a lot of, inf- of reference, obviously, but we want to do like a Jewish Western. Okay. Which is something that I'm not sure anyone did before. A, a Jewish Western with the landscapes and guns and standoffs and the house, the wild house, and the deserted house in, on the hill and the candlelight and everything is very, uh, in a way, colorful but uh, very precise and very accurate. Mm-hmm. So uh, yeah, we did, and we were lucky enough to have a Rotem Yaron, which is really an amazing, really amazing uh, director of photography. Mm-hmm. And the location we shot and uh, was amazing for us because. I, uh, you know, in Israel, we laugh about it. In Israel, we're a Middle Eastern country, so <laughs> there is the the far the far the the um, closest you go to the equation, middle of Earth, sun is brutal, and there is no magic hour. Right. And obviously, once you go north, the magic hour turns to be soft, and the lighting is more beautiful. So in Israel, lighting is really really bad. All Israeli movies. It's very hard to, go, to get the right sun for it. It's mm-hmm. desert, boiling sun. But in Ukraine, we were amazed to see that like, the magic hour there is like two and a half hours long, which is crazy. Wow. Like, you, and, and also, yeah. And so, I don't know why. I, I guess it's the, the altitude, the, the geography uh, place and stuff. But it was for us amazing to get the perfect, it's the perfect lighting, the country for lighting a, a movie. Mm-hmm. Because uh, the lighting there took this, had this effect on our movie, which you can really put your finger on uh, any, in any shot if you know how to work with it. Mm-hmm. You so know, for us, it was a really amazing experience. I would be remiss not to ask you about your music, the score that you have. It is, it's mm-hmm. beautiful. It's beautiful. How, what was your collaboration you. with your composer? with Talia Denny like to develop yeah, the score uh, for this film because of the varying emotions that we're experiencing and because the score really is following Hannah's emotional journey. Yeah, that's exactly what we wanted to to, to give the audience to, to give the movie to use music and by the way use a lot of music we like music to use music in in movies like I know that our directors are very, some could be more delicate, but me and you would like this music manipulation of the audience. It's so powerful. And once, if it's good and if it's working, if it's orchestra, we think it's the, it's the best impact that you can have. Mm-hmm. So we, we tried to, we started to think how to tell Hannah's story and how she creates this golem and all her journey she goes to the movie through the music. And the first thing that came to mind, obviously, is like the, the obviously uh, ideas, like a violin. Mm-hmm. So a violin is very Jewish. Right? Yes. 
clarinet is a very Jewish music, uh, Jewish music instrument. But we wanted to take the traditional, traditional Jewish music, which you can hear maybe on you know, the normal stuff, like uh, it's called klezmer, klezmerim music, the stuff you hear on Hasidic weddings and violin and clarinets and very, you know, fiddler, fiddler on the roof kind mm-hmm. of music. <laughs> yeah. We wanted to give it, but we wanted to give it the dark side. We wanted to give it the twist, the dark twist to it. And so we started, uh, you know, uh, the musician, Talia Dene, which is really, like, it was amazing. He brought a symphony, uh, an orchestra, a big orchestra, Israeli one, and we started really, uh, you know, taking apart this kind of Jewish uh, music to, to find the sadness in it and the dark side in it. So the violin will never be clean. It will always be, uh, you know, dirty a bit and bad, bad playing in a way that you can hear the fingers and you can hear the wood. And everything should be very uh, not so perfect. And uh, I think it did a, a really good job in the score. We're really proud of it. Yeah. Yeah. No, I I love the scoring that you have here. So now you you co-directed you. with your brother. How does this collaboration work? Does one of you pay more attention <laughs> to the actors and the other, the more technical end? Do you trade off, or you do do you stand there behind in Video Village or behind the camera and your and your DP and and just argue with, with each other and say, no, I like that one, I like that one, no, you can't have that one, I want that one. How does this? sibling collaboration <laughs> yeah. go forward? Uh, it's a good question. Obviously, it's a, a, a question we encounter a lot. So, first of all, we don't have separations regarding our art. So, it's not like the Coen brothers, this one is more directing and the other one is more writing. We right. do everything together, write and direct together. Uh, obviously, uh, we, we grew up with the same references. You know, we come, from the, we come from the same house and we saw the same movies and read the same books. So our cultural influences are, are, you know, I, I don't think there's anyone in the world that's more similar to my artistic references, obviously, than my brother. And, uh, you know, in the pre-productions, that's the, for us, the pre-productions is the most important stuff, the most important part in the movie process. It wasn't the shooting, in a way. Because once you start shooting, you know, in a, in a mid-average range budget, not like the big, big Hollywood budget, you, you, never have really, you never have time to think. You, you plan for two, three months before the pre-production, and once you start shoot, it's like, blah, 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 blah. You don't have to talk at all. You, you, you just execute. Obviously, with a lot of attention and uh, being delicate, but there's not a lot of time to argue. The arguments and the thoughts and the different ideas come beforehand in the, in the writings, obviously, and in the pre-production. Uh, so once we're on set, we'll come really, really ready, mm-hmm. and there's only one rule we really really like trying to keep is that only one of us is talking to the actors because it's a very delicate situation. We, we don't want to give them different ideas. Sure. Only one takes, the, the, one, the brother that feels more secure about the scene takes a step forward and talk to the actors and the other one takes a step back and talk to the technical crew. Mm-hmm. So it's quite working good because so, like a two, like two-headed monster that one deals with the actors and the other with the camera. But it's not like really someone's doing this, someone's doing that. Mm-hmm. How long were you in pre-production yeah. on the Golem? Uh, around three months, I think. Two and a half, yeah. That's not... That's only, you know, like the big, big uh, pre-production. Obviously, you work on a movie a year before sure. and writing and thinking. 
panic. But the real, real pre-production was around two and a half months, I think. Wow. You know, I'm curious, Doran, because your last film, Jerusalem, that had zombies in it. Now we're creating a golem. What is the appeal of these dark mythologies for you? What is it that attracts you to the darkness that you like bringing out in film? Uh, it's a good I just, we just like, even when we were kids, by the way, our father was also a film director. He gave us a video camera in the 80s, and the first thing we did, without, without even thinking about it, just brought our friends, they're just killing everyone with ketchup, and like, doing short movies about serial killers and messages. <laughs> so, I think there's something in horror movies that is very therapeutic, and, uh, and it lets you deal with uh, the stuff that you're really afraid of it, I'm sure there's a lot of psychologistic researches about it. I'm not, uh, I'm not really uh, know all them all. But for us, for me, we'd always like to deal with the, with the dark side, the, the, the dark side of the soul. It doesn't have to be horror. It can be thrilling. It can be, uh, you know, something dark. But, uh, and around us, you know, every culture has their own dark stuff. If mm-hmm. uh, it's a uh, northern and uh, no, no, uh, you know uh, Sweden and northern uh, mythologies or African mythologies, each director is dealing with their own uh, boogeyman, their own monsters. So we like to deal with our monsters, the, the Jewish monsters. There are so many of them: Golem, Lilith, uh, it's their dark angels. Uh, the apocalypse, obviously, will start in Jerusalem if you believe in it. So we are surrounded. We live an hour from Jerusalem. There's so many crazy stories about the city, and so many uh, uh, material for movies. So for us, it's a very good combination. We like to deal with this kind of subject. Well, I know one of my favorite mythologies in the Jewish uh, tradition is the Dybbuk. I love I love films and stories about the Dybbuk box. I just I, yeah yeah I, the Jewish exorcist. Yes, I, I just I just I'm fascinated by those. Um, you know, mm-hmm. like you, yeah, I, I am, I'm very drawn to these dark mythologies also because there's so much psychological underpinnings underneath them that really give right. you something yeah. that you can, <laughs> you can latch on to visually and visually, emotionally and intellectually when you start digging yeah. to find out more about these, um, Doran, yeah, I... you're totally right, and I think that's uh, that's a good first story, by the way, when it's character-driven and not just silly jump scares, and you know. Yeah, no, that's it's much deeper than that. You know, because this you cannot. You are so invested as you watch the golem. You are so invested into what Hannah is doing as you're slowly understanding that she's going behind everybody's back, and she's studying, and then she's determined she wants to protect the village. Um, but this whole, the whole idea of gr- being driven by grief and the lengths that you go to, um, it, just, it is just so poignant on the one hand and so frightening on the other hand. But you find that perfect balance yeah. in here. And I mean, thank you. So happy. I mean, this is everybody needs to see this film. Everybody needs to see <laughs> this film. Everybody, go now. Okay. Now the uh, film, yeah, it's out. Actually, you know, it is out. Very exciting time. It is out yeah, now. For us, you, know, you, you work so much on a movie so long, like two years in the making, and uh, yeah, now it's out. Uh, reviews are really good. Like we're we're always checking the Rotten Tomatoes to see our review, our score. 
and they were really good, like 93, 94, which is amazing. Oh, and, uh, okay. yeah, it's out. Yeah, yeah. The reviews are really, really good for well, now. Well, I'll wood. I and, I'll actually have my review out and on Rotten Tomatoes this week for you. So, so. Oh, okay. I hope you won't damage the score. <laughs> I'm not going to damage your score. Trust me. <laughs> yeah, I'm kidding. Uh, okay. What? But yeah, it's really. We're really happy. The, the thing that we're really proud of and happy with is that we can bring, like in Jerusalem, we can bring a local story, our local story but to the worldwide audience. And it, you don't have to be a Jew or a Jewish or a, some kind of... You can, you, every audience can relate to this story, same as I can see in a, 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 a movie about a, some a Mexican tradition or African tradition. Mm-hmm. You know, it's very... It, it doesn't have to be so contained and closed for the Jewish audience. That's what you know, the thing is, if it's good storytelling, it's good storytelling for everybody. Exactly. You know, there is no right. knocking. Right. You can't, as long as you have a, it's a good story and you're telling it well, your audience is there. Everyone appreciates yeah. good storytelling and filmmaking. Ah, oh, Durant, this is so wonderful that you called in this morning. Thank you so much. I know it's like sure. almost 10 o'clock yeah. at night in Israel. You're probably getting ready, yeah. getting ready to go to bed or go it's out. It's okay. I'm jet lagged. I, I just, I just headed from LA, so I'm still jet lagged. Oh. Like daytime now in my head. Oh, so you're it's ready to go out and party now. <laughs> you're ready to go out and party. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Oh, uh, Duran, thank you. Yeah, so, like, I hope yeah. I hope that you'll come back on the show. I get to talk to you again about your next film yeah, when you do it. I mean, abs- sure. absolutely wonderful. Thank you so, okay, so, thank you so much. Thank you so much for having me. Bye-bye. Okay, take care. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Thank you. Bye-bye. And that was Duran Paz, co-director of The Golem. Um, and it truly, it's out now, limited release. I do believe it's also on, available on VOD and or digital download right now. Um, it is a fascinating film. It is high production values. It's beautiful. Um, but, and yeah, it's got some really, really cool my, mystical horror going on here. Um, so you get this week, three great movies that I love. All three different that uh, we got to talk about. You know, Dead Ant, please, please, you know, watch it on VOD. Do digital download on it. It is hilarious. If you just want a good time, you know, Valentine's Day. I got news for you. If you don't know what to do for Valentine's Day, this will at least make your significant other laugh. If you messed up on the gift, rent, download. Do whatever, sit home, get your red Solo cups, throw your favorite beverage in there, and watch Dead Ant. And the laughter will, will anybody's mad at you because you got them a crappy gift or forgot, it'll be the perfect, the perfect antidote for Valentine's Day. And of course, in theaters right now, we have the golem, but also the hole in the ground. Exquisite, exquisite work by Lee Cronin. Um, so, that is actually... All the time we have today, um, my whole, the Hole in the Ground review is already up on BehindTheLensOnline.net. The full interview of Lee is going to be up there this hopefully later tonight, if not this week, as will the lead actress, Shauna Kearslake. Um, and next week, Sam Friedlander is going to be with us. 
Love Sam. Love his work. He has a new film out in follow-up to the last one he did, Larry Gay, Flight Attendant, uh, which is a a laugh-out-loud funny film. So, until next week, I'm Debbie Elias. This is Behind the Lens. (laughs) 